So continuing with chapter 3, I'm on page 16, the very last line on page 16. So just to recap, Hester Prynne is standing on the scaffold. She has recognized a uh, face from her past in the crowd. And now she is going to have to answer to um, remember the governor, a couple of ministers, some other important people are standing up in a balcony attached to the meeting house, kind of like this large um, community place building there in um, Boston, which also serves as a church. So all of these important people are standing on a balcony and they are looking over and down at Hester Prynne, who is standing on the scaffold. And then, um, so on this balcony, we have the Reverend John Wilson, who is actually a real person. If you look him up in history, he is an older minister. And then Governor Bellingham, who is an actual person. And um, then we have another minister that we will hear from. And his name is Arthur Dimstow, And he is a young minister. So at the bottom of page 16, uh, Reverend Wilson says to Hester Prynne, Hearken unto me, Hester Prynne, said the voice. It has already been noticed that directly over the platform on which Hester Prynne stood was a kind of balcony or open gallery appended to the meeting house. It was the place where proclamation, whence proclamations were wont to be made amidst an assemblage of the magistracy with all the ceremonial that attended such public observances in those days. Here to witness the scene which we are describing sat Governor Bellingham himself, with four sergeants about his chair bearing halberds as a guard of honor. He wore a dark feather in his hat, a border of embroidery on his cloak, and a black velvet tunic beneath. A gentleman advanced in years and with a hard experience written in his wrinkles. He was not ill-fitted to be the head and representative of a community which owed its origin and progress and its present state of development, not to the impulses of youth, but to the stern and tempered energies of manhood and the somber sagacity of age, accomplishing so much precisely because it imagined and hoped so little. The other eminent characters by whom the chief ruler was surrounded were distinguished by a dignity of mien belonging to a period when the forms of authority were felt to possess the sacredness of divine institutions. They were doubtless good men, just and sage. But out of the whole human family, it would not have been easy to select the same number of wise and virtuous persons who should be less capable of sitting in judgment on an erring woman's heart and disentangling its mesh of good and evil than the sages of rigid aspect towards whom Hester Prynne now turned her face. She seemed conscious, indeed, that whatever sympathy she might expect lay in the larger and warmer heart of the multitude. For, as she lifted her eyes towards the balcony, the unhappy woman grew pale and trembled. The voice which had called her attention was that of the reverend and famous John Wilson, the eldest clergyman of Boston. A great scholar, like most of his contemporaries in the profession, and withal a man of kind and genial spirit. This last attribute, however, had been less carefully developed than his intellectual gifts, and was, in truth, 
rather a matter of shame than self-congratulation with him. There he stood with a border of grizzled locks beneath his skull cap, while his gray eyes, accustomed to the shaded light of his study, were winking like those of Hester's infant in the unadulterated sunshine. He looked like the darkly engraved portraits which we see prefixed to old volumes of sermons, and had no more right than one of those portraits would have to step forth, as he now did, and meddle with a question of human guilt, passion, and anguish. Hester Prynne, said the clergyman, I have striven with my young brother here under those whose preaching of the word you have been privileged to sit. Here Mr. Wilson laid his hand on the shoulder of a pale young man beside him. I have sought, I say, to persuade this godly youth that he should deal with you here in the face of heaven and before these wise and upright rulers, and in hearing of all the people, as touching the vileness and blackness of your sin, knowing your natural temper better than I, he could the better judge what arguments to use, whether of tenderness or terror, such as might prevail over your hardness and obstinacy, and so much that you should no longer hide the name of him who tempted you to this grievous fall. But he opposes to me, with a young man's over-softness, albeit wise beyond his years, that it were wronging the very nature of woman to force her to lay open her heart's secrets in such broad daylight and in the presence of so great a multitude. Truly, as I sought to convince him, the shame lay in the commission of the sin and not in the showing of it forth. What say you to it once again, Brother Dimsdale? Must it be thou or I? that shall deal with this poor sinner's soul. There was a murmur among the dignified and reverend occupants of the balcony, and Governor Bellingham gave expression to its purport, speaking in an authoritative voice, although tempered with respect towards the youthful clergyman whom he addressed. Good, Master Dimsdale, said he. The responsibility of this woman's soul lies greatly with you. It behooves you, therefore, to exhort her to repentance and to confession as a proof and consequence thereof. The directness of this appeal drew the eyes of the whole crowd upon the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale, a young clergyman who had come from one of the great English universities, bringing all the learning of the age into our wild forest land. His eloquence and religious fervor had already given the earnest of high eminence in his profession. He was a person of very striking aspect, with a white, lofty, and impending brow, large, brown, melancholy eyes, and a mouth which, unless when he forcibly compressed it, was apt to be tremulous, expressing both nervous sensibility and a vast power of self-restraint. Notwithstanding his high native gifts and scholar-like attainments, there was an air about this young minister, an apprehensive, a startled, a half-frightened look, as of a being who felt himself quite astray and at a loss in the pathway of human existence, and could only be at ease in some seclusion of his own. Therefore, so far as his duties would permit, he trod in the shadowy bypaths and thus kept himself simple and childlike, coming forth, when occasion was, 
with a freshness and fragrance and dewy purity of thought, which, as many people said, affected them like the speech of an angel. Such was the young man whom the Reverend Mr. Wilson and the governor had introduced so openly to the public notice, bidding him speak in the hearing of all men to that mystery of a woman's soul, so sacred even in its pollution. The trying nature of his position drove the blood from his cheek and made his lips tremulous. Speak to the woman, my brother, said Mr. Wilson. It is a moment, it is a moment to her soul, and therefore, as the worshipful governor says, momentous to thine own, and whose charge hers is, exhort her to confess the truth. The Reverend Mr. Dimsdale bent his head in silent prayer, as it seemed, and then came forward. Hester Prynne, said he, leaning over the balcony and looking down steadfastly into her eyes. Thou hearest what this good man says, and seest the accountability under which I labor. If thou fillest it to be for thy soul's peace, and that thy earthly punishment will thereby be made more effectual to salvation, I charge thee to speak out the name of thy fellow sinner and fellow sufferer. Be not silent from any mistaken pity and tenderness for him. For believe me, Hester, though he were to step down from a high place and stand there beside thee on thy pedestal of shame, yet better were it so than to hide a guilty heart through life. What can thy silence do for him except it tempt him, yea, compel him, as it were, to add hypocrisy to sin? Heaven hath granted thee an open ignominy, that thereby thou mayest work out an open triumph over the evil within thee and the sorrow without. Take heed how thou deniest to him, who perchance hath not the courage to grasp it for himself, the bitter but wholesome cup that is now presented to thy lips. The young pastor's voice was tremulously sweet, rich, deep, and broken. The feeling that so evidently manifested, rather than the direct purport of the words, caused it to vibrate within all hearts and brought the listeners into one accord of sympathy. Even the poor baby at Hester's bosom was affected by the same influence, for it directed its hitherto vacant gaze towards Mr. Dimsdale and held up its little arms with a half-pleased, half-plaintive murmur. So powerful seemed the minister's appeal that the people could not believe but that Hester Prynne would speak out the guilty name or else that the guilty one himself in whatever high or lowly place he stood would be drawn forth by an inward and inevitable necessity and compelled to ascend the scaffold. Hester shook her head. Woman, transgress not beyond the limits of heaven's mercy cried the Reverend Mr. Wilson, more harshly than before. That little babe hath been gifted with a voice to second and confirm the counsel which thou hast heard. Speak out the name, that and thy repentance may avail to take the scarlet letter off thy breast. Never, replied Hester Prynne, looking not at Mr. Wilson, but into the deep and troubled eyes of the younger clergyman. 
It is too deeply branded. You cannot take it off, and would that I might endure his agony as well as mine. Speak, woman, said another voice coldly and sternly, proceeding from the crowd about the scaffold. Speak and give your child a father. I will not speak, answered Hester, turning pale as death, but responding to this voice, which she too surely recognized. And my child must seek a heavenly father. She shall never know an earthly one. She will not speak, murmured Mr. Dimsdale, who, leaning over the balcony with his hand upon his heart, had awaited the result of his appeal. He now drew back with a long respiration. Wondrous strength and generosity of a woman's heart. She will not speak. Discerning the impracticable state of the poor culprit's, mi- culprit's mind, the elder clergyman, who had carefully prepared himself for the occasion, addressed to the multitude a discourse on sin and all its branches, but with continual reference to the ignominious letter. So forcibly did he dwell upon this symbol, for the hour or more during which his periods were rolling over the people's heads, that it assumed new terrors in their imagination and seemed to derive its scarlet hue from the flames of the internal of the infernal pit. Hester Prynne, meanwhile, kept her place upon the pedestal of shame with glazed eyes and an air of weary indifference. She had borne that morning all that nature could endure, and as her temperament was not of the order that escapes from too intense suffering by a swoon, her spirit could only shelter itself beneath a stony crust of insensibility, while the faculties of animal life remained entire. In this state, the voice of the preacher thundered remorselessly but unavailingly upon her ears. The infant during the latter portion of her ordeal pierced the air with its wailings and screams. She strove to hush it mechanically, but seemed scarcely to sympathize with its trouble. With the same hard demeanor, she was led back to prison and vanished from the public gaze within its iron-clamped portal. It was whispered by those who peered after her that the scarlet letter threw a lurid gleam along the dark passageway of the interior.